We resume our survey of the book of Micah in our sermon series. We're in the seventh chapter. We'll be reading verses 7 through 10 this Lord's Day. Micah 7, 7 through 10. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and he executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I will look upon his vindication and then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, who is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled, trampled down like the mire of the streets. Father, we are blessed to know from your word of the salvation that we have in Jesus. We're reminded of that in the passage before us. But Father, we're also reminded that some walk in darkness. So if they hear the gospel this morning, would you please transform them into the glorious kingdom of our dear son, our savior. Bless us, Holy Spirit. Be our good teacher this Lord's day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. I will confess to you that before this week, I never heard of the website called Brain Z. But Brain Z gives us a list of supposedly the 100 greatest three-word phrases in the English language. Now, I will tell you, I had to edit that list highly. Many of those things listed would not be coming at all from a Christian perspective. But amazingly enough, there were at least six by my count of those three-word phrases in the English language uh, that did align themselves very well with Scripture. My favorite one right off the bat when I saw it was three words, get enough sleep. Get enough sleep. Remember, the Bible tells us it is vain to rise up early, to sit up late, so he gives his beloved sleep. The second phrase that seemed to fit in with biblical teaching is words can hurt. Words can hurt. Obviously, we recognize that James tells us everyone should be slow to speak and swift to hear. And right alongside of that then comes the third three-word phrase, speak the truth. Complete reflection of the ninth commandment. And another one, frequently heard, of course, in all circles, but for us in Christian circles, it makes true a biblical accord. Never give up. Be steadfast, immovable in the Lord knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But amazingly enough, as I read through the list, two more of these three-word phrases came to really focus on the heart of the gospel for us as God's people. And here's phrase number five, forgive my sins. Forgive my sins. Remember, God said in Isaiah, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And ultimately, God alone saves. Three-word phrase, great significance, God alone saves. And that will be our focus this morning, uh, this Lord's Day. But I cannot uh, pass by J.I. Packer in Knowing God, a book that many of us have read and no doubt uh, gained great insight from. Packer, in typical Packer language, says, here's the sum of the, of, of the gospel. 
in three words. You want the gospel summed up in three words? Here it is. Adoption through propitiation. Now that's profound. And it's true. But I somehow don't think it's ever going to make anybody's 100 uh, three-phrase words in the English language list. Today, Micah's prophecy of salvation, restoration. We've talked about corruption. We've talked about judgment already in Micah 7. And that's the cycle we've seen all along in the book. Corruption, judgment, ultimately uh, restoration. Today, we'll use the word salvation. Remember last week, uh, Micah looked throughout Judah out the, uh, Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms. He looked for one righteous man. He couldn't find one. And so they faced the condemnation of their sins. And yet, Micah, in great contrast, after he lamented the state of God's people, who rejoiced in his salvation. And so we looked at verse 7 last week, and I do want to consider verse 7 as we begin this week. As we consider three words that summarize Isaiah, Micah's prophecy for us, this prophecy of salvation. And then we'll look at three ways that this uh, prophecy of salvation was fulfilled by our God. We ended with verse 7. Let's resume there again this week. As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. See, Micah's prophecy of salvation was based upon faith in the, the God of his salvation. And that's our first word, our first summary of this prophecy of salvation, the word faith. In spite of the fact that he sees ungodly, unjust men all around him, so that even the best of them, we are told, are like briars and thorn hedges that cause annoyance and others to be trapped, but also result in their ultimate destruction in fire. That's what we read in verses 1 through 4 last week. Micah said, I'm not just going to look at the world around me. He vowed that he would look to the unseen Jehovah and he would wait for God's salvation. He was fully confident that God would both hear and answer his cry for help. And that is, of course, demonstrating true biblical faith. Remember Hebrews 11.1, describing faith for us, somewhat defining it for us? Faith, Hebrews 11.1 said, was the assurance of things that are hoped for. Not a vain hope, not a it may happen this way, not a a wish that it would come to pass. See, Micah knows in his faith, his God is a loving and a merciful God who answers his people's humble cry for salvation. Remember how the rest of Hebrews 11, when it goes, it goes on to define faith in this way. It's the conviction of things not conviction something ready to stake your life on and Micah's faith is in his source of life the God of his salvation and faith is further described not just in the verse that we considered last week but he continues Micah does talking about faith in verse 8 before us rejoice not over me O my enemy when I fall I shall rise when I sit in darkness the Lord will be a light to me. No doubt in Micah's mind, it will, these things will take place. Micah begins by warning his enemies. The enemies who thought and gloated over him that he was uh, doomed for failure, they, in disdain they looked upon him. And these enemies could be those inside of Israel, the, those inside of Judah. Remember the prophets often found resistance from God's people who refused to repent. And these enemies could have been the outsiders, especially we think of 
those great enemies that Micah has already prophesied against, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Note back in chapter 4 of Micah, in verse 10, Micah has already told the Babylonians that there will come a time when God's people will be taken into captivity, but then God will bring them back and the Babylonians will be destroyed. Micah 4, 10, Writhe, groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. You shall go out from the city. You'll dwell in that open country. You will go to Babylon, but there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So Babylonians, don't think for those mere 70 years that somehow God's not going to take care of us. He will. And so Micah also condemned the Assyrians and warned them that they too would fail in Micah 5, uh, 5 and 6. And remember, Micah saw the Assyrians come and destroy the northern kingdom even in his lifetime. And he saw them outside of Jerusalem almost able to take over. And I say almost because, again, God will not allow his enemies to ultimately win. And so when the Assyrian comes into our land, Micah 5, 5 says, treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds, eight princes of men, They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. And so Micah can say, I know this will take place. Don't rejoice, enemies, over me. Micah walks by faith and not by sight. He had the conviction that the yet unseen demise of his enemies would take place because his God was the God of his salvation. But Micah does live in reality. His faith does not prompt him to conclude that his life will always be a bed of roses. Don't you just cringe when you hear TV radio evangelists who talk about how turn to Jesus and You'll you'll receive a million dollars, a pink catalog, and everything else you ever wanted in life. That's not the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and that's not what Micah proclaims here. Notice his next phrase. When I fall, I shall rise. We will fall, won't we? Fall because of our own sin, because of the seeming victory of enemies around us. But Micah is like the righteous man that's described for us in Psalm 37, 24. Listen to that description, Micah from Psalm 37, 24. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Beloved, when you fall this week, and we all will fall this week, look in faith to your loving God who holds you in his hand. He will never let you be cast headlong forever. Next image we have in uh, verse 8 is the image that we focused in on in our Old Testament and New Testament reading, the frequent uh, image in Scripture of darkness of sin contrasted with the light of the gospel, the contrast of darkness with those who are in the light of Jehovah. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And we see the fallen world around us. We mentioned this in prayer meeting. We prayed over the uh, earthquake victims in Turkey, in Syria. We see oil spills in Ohio. We see and watch uh, people around us and our families still unable to seemingly shake this cough, this cold that keeps going and going around. 
the glorious light of the gospel and of our God and our Savior still rings through even these heartaches in these troubles. Darkness seeming to overwhelm you this week. Remember the hymn we just sang, The Light of the World is Jesus. But there's another one that I almost selected. Do you know these words? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May we all have the faith of Micah to look to our God of salvation, even when the darkness around us seems to surround us and seems to overwhelm us. And as we, of course, consider the rest of Scripture, this darkness, light contrast, this Im- image of faith, this great description of faith for Micah, is made even more clear with the coming of our Savior. As the Philippian jailer was told by Paul when he asked, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your own household. And that's our confession of faith summarizes saving faith in a wonderful way for us. In in, in chapter uh, 14, paragraph 2 of the confession, listen to these words. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. And you might think the next word would be for salvation, but actually it's for justification. That is, we are made right with God because of the faith that God gives to us. But then the confession doesn't stop there. The confession reminds us this life of faith is an ongoing life. Sanctification, eternal life, by which, by virtue rather, of the covenant of grace. That's how the chapter of saving faith is summarized for us in that definition. It's not just our justification, it's our sanctification, all because we are, by God's grace, members of his covenant community. And so God's covenant people throughout their lives must demonstrate faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as prophesied by Micah in our text. But accompanying that faith also we must see that twin saving grace of repentance. And that's our second word to summarize for us our our text before us in the salvation uh, prophecy that Micah gives to us. Notice the first part of verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Acknowledgement of sin is one thing. Micah acknowledges it, but he doesn't take it lightly. He realizes it deserves Jehovah's. And the word here, indignation, could be translated uh, at its root as the word tempestuous. It's as if Because of my sin, I now face the storms of life that I deserve because of the way I've acted against a holy God. See, again, our our, our catechism reminds us repentance in the life is, uh, it requires a true sense of sin and a great grief and hatred over sin because it's a rebellion against God. And we see sin for what it is in rebellion against God's holy nature. And we, we know this Psalm 51 fairly well, I think. Remember David's great prayer of repentance there? Micah, like David, in Psalm 51, 3 and 4, very similar words. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and, I, and done what is evil in your sight. Experienced parents know 
that a true sign of repentance on the part of children is not when they say, I'm sorry. Some of them catch on real early. Even before you get to the paddle, they start apologizing and profusely telling you how, how badly they feel about their sin. You want to know, parents, um, if your child's truly repentant, when they, on those wonderful occasions, look to you and say, give me what I deserve because I know I should get it. And some of you are saying, when, would, when did that happen? Well, that should happen as godly children and godly parents, right? That's true repentance. I'm a sinner. I deserve whatever comes my way. See, Micah, David, what a great contrast. Remember Cain? Cain kills his brother, Abel. God punishes him, and Cain does not say, I will wait on the indignation of the Lord. Cain whines and says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Godly men, truly repentant men, are aware of the apprehension of the mercy of God that can only come in Christ. And that's why Micah goes on to say, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him, but there's coming a day when he will plead my cause. He will execute justice for me. Micah knows that God's a God of mercy. Micah knows that when sinners repent of their sin, God does forgive. And that's why Psalm 51 begins with, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Repentance requires turning from sin, turning to Christ. We cannot have true saving faith without having true saving repentance. Notice how verse 9 ends. The, the repentance is still ongoing, but now we return to the theme of faith again. He will bring me out to the light, and I shall look upon his vindication. I've, I've admitted my sin. I'm ready to accept his discipline, but I am confident that he will get me out of the darkness into his light because, again, I know what kind of a merciful God is. And so much so that Micah can even say, I shall look upon his vindication. That is his righteousness, some of you may have. Or even the phrase right dealings. And I really think that's probably the best way to see this. Micah can say, because before God I have been granted the gifts of repentance and faith, I also know that one day in God's dealing with me, it will be just for him to forgive me of my sins. Isn't that what we read in 1 John 1.9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just to forgive us our sins. But why? Because of Christ's death on the cross, as we reminded ourselves of earlier. And yes, we use the word propitiation from uh, 1 John 2, 2. So I, I do need to back up, and I do need to justify my friend J.I. Packer. I wish he were my friend. He's in glory now. He is my friend. Someday we'll see each other face to face. But nonetheless, when Packer made that phrase that we probably wouldn't use on our own, Adoption through propitiation, all he was saying there is, we who should be enemies of God because of our sins are made right with God. Propitiation, God's wrath is appeased on the cross, and now we're not enemies. Now we're adopted sons and daughters. See, Packer really did know what he was talking about. But it, God is just, He is faithful to forgive us of our sins. But I want you to turn with me, if you'd like, or listen to Acts chapter 20. Because Paul's testimony of his ministry at Ephesus, as he calls the elders back, you may recall that, as was so often the case with Paul, he had to leave Ephesus because persecution was coming, the Ephesian riot had taken place. But he wanted to make sure that he saw the elders one last time, so they meet together on the seacoast of Miletus, and it's Paul's testimony 
in verse 18. We'll pick it up in the middle of the verse. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. I served the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Micah faced enemies. Paul faced enemies. But Paul said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public from house to house. Declaring almost has the idea of preaching there, preaching and teaching in public, house to house. I only told you what was profitable. And what is it that Paul says was profitable? How would Paul summarize his gospel message? Notice these words. I testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Twin saving graces, repentance and faith. That was Micah's prophecy of salvation. That was Paul's gospel of salvation. And by God's grace, we who believe in the Lord Jesus recognize that it is our gospel message as well. And as I alluded to a minute ago, I must reference again, I really am fearful that often in American evangelicalism, the gospel tends to get watered down because there's not an emphasis on repentance. Our confession, I think, again, rightly summarizes things for us. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. You can't proclaim faith without also proclaiming repentance. God forbid that I, as your pastor, should ever, ever neglect to tell sinners to have a godly sorrow over their sins and to proclaim, as Paul did, what is profitable for them. That is, namely, repentance toward God. But... God also forbid that I should be like the stereotypical hellfire and brimstone preachers that sometimes we've seen that rail against sin exclusively without reminding us all of the mercy of God that is in Christ Jesus. We've been given those twin gifts of faith and repentance, those of us who are God's people, and we must continue to live lives of repentance and faith. But we said there was a three-word phrase for us. We have one more word to consider from our text in Micah 7. So if you turn back with me, we'll consider verse 10 now. Repentance and faith. But then we read in verse 10, My enemy will see, shame will cover her, who said to me, Where's the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. She will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. The third word I would submit to you, beloved, is the word deliverance. Deliverance. See, Micah's warning to his enemies in verse 8 not to rejoice over him in his seemingly defeated condition now gets changed to shame in the verse before us. You who gloated over me, you who thought that you could defeat God, will now be ashamed. And two times in verse 10, we read the word her to describe those people. Again, no doubt referencing the nations because in Those days, just like in our day, sometimes we use uh, feminine pronouns to reference countries. The Assyrians, the Babylonians are going to be destroyed. And Micah could have, very conceivably, because it was at the time when he was prophesying, he could have heard the taunts of the Assyrians. Remember the Assyrian official, the Rabshakeh, who stood outside the walls of Jerusalem, scoffing at the people of Jerusalem? Among other things, he said this from 2 Kings 18, 
35. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Jehovah, they're saying, is no better than the pagan gods. He can't deliver you. Where is the Lord your God? Micah's answer, the Lord my God is in heaven waiting for the day when he will trample you down like the mire of the streets, the end of verse 10. See, the complete deliverance for God's people comes when their enemies are completely destroyed by their God. And that's David's testimony. It's amazing to me. David, Micah, uh, prophets of God. But David, of course, the great warrior king of God's people. If you'd like to turn back with me to Psalm 18, I want to just show you once more the great truths that uh, the deliverance that God brings, he brings through his great warrior king. But David would never say he was the great warrior king. Uh, We all know that David prefigures our Lord Jesus, the greater David. But I want us to note uh, even before we read verse, the verses in the chapter that I want to draw our attention to, the, the superscription at the beginning, and I am convinced that these uh, are inspired words of God, every bit as much as the verses, and that's why when we read responsive readings, I read those superscriptions. And notice this very significant one is at the beginning of chapter 18. David says, I, I, this is such a great uh, song, I want the choir master to do something with it. It's a psalm of David. But notice how he addresses himself, the servant of the Lord. And he addresses these words of of this song to the Lord himself, Jehovah, the great God, on the day when the Lord, here's our word, delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David knows it was God who delivered him, even that great warrior king. So what is David's testimony? Notice just two verses from the psalm at the end, verses 41 42, talking about God's enemies, his enemies. They cried for help. There was none to save. They cried to the Lord, that is to Jehovah. He didn't answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out. Here's the same phrase that we saw in Micah. Like the mire of the streets. Well, until that ultimate defeat comes, God's people now continue to have faith in the God of their salvation And they continue to live lives of repentance before him. And that leads us then to this question. When does the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy of salvation take place? Well, we have another three-word answer for us today, or in this case, three-phrase answer, a three-fold answer here. Remember, faith, repentance, deliverance. Well, it's first shown as God's people are freed from captivity in Babylon. We've already read that. From Micah 4, verse 10. And some even believe that Micah's using the first person plural I throughout verses 7 through 10. The I should be understood only as the remnant of the exiles from Babylon exclusively. And that's the only fulfillment as Judah's citizens return from exile. I'm convinced Judah's citizens return from exile it is a partial fulfillment, and I, but I think it's much too a narrow of an approach to say it's the only fulfillment. But notice, this return from exile does occur when the Persians shockingly overtake the Babylonians who were the scourge of their day. And God used the Persians to make sure, to ensure 
that Micah's prophecy was true about the Babylonians. They did become like the mire in the streets as the Persians overtook them, indeed miraculously, in one night. And with that destruction of the Babylonians came the deliverance, came the restoration of Jerusalem and Judah. Jehovah seemingly, uh, sovereignly rather, moved on the heart of uh, the Persian king Cyrus. The emperor Cyrus allowed God's people to return. And you may recall, and I know I'm doing all this history very quickly this morning, but just to show you that God does deliver his people in the return from the exile, you recall that they, they went back in three waves. The first wave under uh, Joshua and, and Zerubbabel and Haggai, the second wave under Ezra, and the third wave shortly thereafter under Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah actually are around together um, in Judah in its restoration process. Remember Ezra, the great scribe, Nehemiah, the governor who inspires the rebuilding of the wall, facing the enemies of God's people. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, we have a wonderful reminder to us that with deliverance comes both repentance and faith. And I want to read to you just the first three verses of Nehemiah 9. One of those great places in God's word to show what repentance is is all about. Nehemiah 9, starting with verse 1. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Outward demonstrations of repentance are great when they're accompanied by heartfelt repentance. And that's what's going on here. How did the people demonstrate that? They separated themselves from all the foreigners and they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law their God for a whole quarter of a day. Beloved, that's serious repentance, right? We are so serious about our repentance. We're going to stand and listen to God's word being read for a quarter of the day. And we're going to confess that we have failed to keep his commandments. And then with repentance, with faith comes true worship of God and they worship their God. Well, the rest of the chapter goes on to rehearse God's faithfulness, but God's people's unfaithfulness. And so there's the cry again out for mercy and for repentance. But notice it ends with the promise of faith and covenant faithfulness. We'll read just verse 38 at the end of chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. The leaders and the citizens of Israel do recognize their sin, promise to live in faith before their God, the one who has delivered them. We know this is only a partial fulfillment. We know that when the Messiah came, sadly, the people of Israel rejected him, and so came the destruction of Israel Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that leads us then to the second way in which Micah's prophecy was fulfilled, and it is this. In the lives of all of God's people. In the lives of all of God's people. See, Micah's not the only one, is he, who can testify that he was delivered from his enemies as he acknowledged his sin and trusted in his God to save him. That's the universal testimony of God's people. We have gone from darkness to light. We have fallen many times, but we, our Savior continues to pick us up. And that when we have cried to God for help, He hears our cry. 
And that's why we read Psalm 27 for our, our, our Old Testament reading. And as I shared with you before we considered those verses, just how similar, how remarkably similar the wording in those verses was to what we've read in Micah 7 this Lord's Day. Because Micah and David both had that same experience, faith, repentance, deliverance. And it's a faith, repentance, deliverance that all of God's people can attest to as well. And so we read in Psalm 27 again, those famous words at the beginning, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And of course, as new covenant people today, we recognize even more clearly that the light, the Lord, the salvation, the Savior is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. We read earlier Jesus speaking to those who opposed him in the darkness of their sin. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. John 12, 36. But even before that, we didn't read these words earlier, but let me read to you from John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. From darkness to the light comes as we turn in repentance of our sins to Christ. And the rest of Psalm 27, and again we'll just read the first eight verses, a reminder to us of that wonderful deliverance that we have from our enemies. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries, my foes, it is they who stumble and fall, not me. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war against me arise, yet I will be confident. Remember assurance, conviction, Hebrews 11? That's what faith is all about. I am confident that I will be delivered even as my enemies attack. And one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Remember, Micah said, I want to look on the God of my salvation. That's David's cry too. I want to be in the presence of my God, that personal relationship that comes with those who have saving repentance, saving faith. He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. We could have added a fourth word here, I guess, this Lord's Day. And that fourth word would have been worship. Because we keep seeing the theme of worship coming up, don't we? David's worship in in, uh, Psalm 18, here in Psalm 27 as well. And here again, as we conclude with verses 7 and 8, Mirroring Micah's words, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious, answer me. You've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And that theme of deliverance seen once more in Paul's words to the church at Colossae in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, be steadfast in your faith, in your repentance. Remember the one who has delivered you, who's transferred you from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Jesus, which leads us to the third way Micah's prophecy is fulfilled. It's fulfilled in the kingdom of Jesus. Yes, fulfilled in all the lives individually, but overall, 
fulfilled in the kingdom of Jesus as well. Do you remember how John the Baptist and Jesus both begin their ministry? Repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the forgiveness of sin. Members of Christ's kingdom are those who have faith in Jesus as their Messiah, are those who've turned away from their sin to him. And sadly, as we've already reminded ourselves, let's be reminded again, the Jews of Jesus' day, for the most part, refused to forsake the darkness of their sin and to come into the light of his kingdom. In our New Testament text, Jesus condemned them for their failure to do so. As we read earlier from John 12, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Being transferred from light into darkness, reminders of repentance and faith. But Jesus also focused on deliverance in that passage. And I want you to hear again these words from John 12. Verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Satan is going to be defeated. This is not Satan's kingdom. This is Jesus' kingdom. And how does that happen? It happens in verse because Jesus said, I will be lifted up and I will draw all people to myself. Peter, Paul said, I've preached to both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus now says, I will draw people from around the world to come into my kingdom. But it cannot happen. It will not happen unless I die for sinners. Jesus was talking, of course, about the way he would die when he said he would be lifted up. So once more, we're adopted through propitiation. Packer was indeed right. We've been delivered from sin and death. Victory over Satan is not, though, of course, just for us as citizens of the Christ kingdom. King Jesus himself has been freed from the bondage of the grave three days after the cross. The resurrection of Jesus ensures both his and our victory over all of our enemies, who will be nothing but mire in the streets, to use Micah's words. When King Jesus returns when he culminates his final kingdom. I'd like to turn to Psalm 22. I'd like to reinforce what we've been saying here. And Psalm 22 is one of those fascinating portions of the Old Testament that talks about the suffering of Jesus. And so much as it focused on his sufferings on the cross, I've asked Chuck to read Psalm 22, 1 through 18, during our time for the Lord's Supper. But there's definite division in Psalm 22 because... Even as verse 18 ends, and you're going to recognize a lot of the words as as, uh, Chuck reads them later, but even as verse 18 reminds us the prophecy, they will divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots, which of course happens with Christ, garments at the cross. Notice how things change as Jesus speaks, though, in verse 19. You, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. And, of course, God the Father does come quickly to his days. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is resurrected from the grave three days later. And when he arises from the dead, it is a quick resurrection. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. And dogs were not domesticated animals. For the most part, they were wild 
animals, not something that you would want to have in your home for the most part in, in, in those days. And so Jesus is saying his enemies are like dogs and I need your victory over them. And of course we know he overcame sin and death and the wicked people of this world. And now we read at the end of Psalm 22, this kingdom isn't just for Jesus. This deliverance isn't just for the Messiah. Notice verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember. They'll turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship you. Kingship belongs to the Lord, belongs to Jesus. He rules over all the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. There's the dust again. Even the one who would not keep himself alive. Posterity will serve him. If it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Don't we have that wonderful covenant blessing from one generation to the other being inferred here? All this because Jesus has come and delivered us. And he too has been delivered. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet on board that he has done it. Micah said, I know I will see the vindication of the Lord, the righteousness, the right healing of the Lord. Jesus said the same thing will happen. The psalmist reminds us of that as well. But sadly, throughout history, and throughout the world even today, there are many unrepentant, unbelieving sinners who, like Micah's enemies, scoff and they cry out, where is the Lord your God? There are like the Lord's enemies who refuse to come out of darkness of sin and, to, and they too reject Jesus. They scoff at him and they say, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? John 12, 34. But make no mistake about it, all of us hearing God's word this Lord's day, Jesus is the Lord our God. He is the Son of Man. He is the great Messiah and he is now reigning as king in glory, bringing those into his kingdom who by his grace are delivered from their sins. If you, hearing this message, have never turned from your sin in repentance and in faith, I exhort you to do so today. It may not appear to you that King Jesus is now ruling and that his enemies have been defeated. But one day, Like Micah's enemies, shame will cover the faces of those who do not embrace the Lord Jesus. Paul reminds us in 2 Thessalonians 1, Jesus will come in flaming fire, inflicting judgment on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord from the glory of his might. Do not be among those. Beloved, Lord Jesus Christ, you who really have turned in faith to him, remain steadfast in your faith. Be constant in your, in your repentance. Be joyful in your worship. Because Paul also tells us that when our Lord Jesus comes on that day, he comes so that he will be glorified and his saints, and he will be marveled at among all those who have truly believed. May Micah's testimony then be all of ours as well. As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we would never 
proclaim that the repentance and faith that you've given to us are anything that we've deserved, anything that we've come up with on our own. It is all because of your marvelous grace to sinners. And for that, we do worship and magnify and thank you. But Father, we also confess that too often in this life, we fall and then we forget that you have assured us you will pick us up. We look around us like Micah did in his day and see enemies winning out. We faint and we grow weary and we wonder. Forgive us for that. Help us to continue to have true faith. Father, when we sin, we often make excuses and we don't want to admit that we were wrong. Help us to be those who say, I repent, it is sin, and I trust in your mercy to save sinners, but I accept from your loving hand what discipline you bring. Help us to remember that we've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So help us to live as children of light. And if there are those who've yet to bend their knee to Christ, may this be the day that you grant to them those twin gifts of repentance and faith so that they too can be delivered. They can too can join us in the day our Savior comes back, rejoicing in the deliverance that we have for all eternity. Hear us, Father, because we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.